Thank you for listening to the Giving Light Podcast. We are a family church and world outreach center. Our heart is to empower you to walk in true freedom and equip you to impact your world. Please visit our website at givinglight.org to learn more about us and our many resources, including original music by Brave Music, e-courses for leaders, tools for raising powerful kids, and more. If you would like to support Giving Light financially, visit our Give Online page to choose the best giving method for you. Thanks again for joining us and enjoy this message. Thank you, Jesus. I'm just going to pray before I do anything else. Jesus, we just thank you for your presence. God, I just thank you, Father, for that childlike faith, God, that we can take you at your word. God, when you say something that we believe you, God, before uh, all of the experience of life mess that up for us, God, we stay in that zone of childlike faith, God, that says that when you say something, you keep your word. So we believe you. We trust you. God, I thank you for your presence here today on each one, God, in this place. God, in every heart, God, I thank you, Father, that the Holy Spirit would be the one speaking to each one today, God, exactly what they need to hear, because you know exactly what they need to hear, in Jesus' name, amen. Can you say amen? Amen. Are you ready to get seasick today? I'm known for a short pace, back and forth. All right. Well, Um, If I have not made it clear to you in the previous weeks, I am pretty excited about the Bible, and um, it was not something I was always excited about. In fact, yesterday I was telling my friend how excited I've been about the Bible, and she was like, I remember when you told me that every time you read the Bible, you fell asleep. And I was like, that was a true time. That was just as true as this time now. Um, But I am just... Um, You know, the Bible is an invitation to know the author, and he is so worth getting to know. And it'll be a lifelong, not just life on this earth, but life for all of eternity and getting to know this God, this master creator who knows us and loves us and being being so positioned to learn who he is and how to love him in return. So... That's not my message. So the one thing that has really excited me in reading the Bible um, in recent times is to read it with threads in mind. And so if you can picture like a big um, blanket or a big um, like like tapestry and how all the threads make up this one picture. And so I've started to read the Bible with threads in mind. And so when I'm reading, um, for example, right now, remembrance is one of those threads that I have in mind. And so whenever I'm reading the Bible and I come across a verse that says, and he remembered, or it talks about remembrance, I just highlight that verse. And it's amazing how you begin to see a theme all throughout the scripture when you do that, when you hang on to a thread. And so another one of those threads that I want to talk about today is how he is a family God. And if you read through the Bible, you'll see it all the way from beginning to end, how he's a family God. And so that's the thread I want us to hold on to today. Um, And if you can pop that first scripture up, this is my theme verse for today. And if we could, on the count of three, can we all read this out loud together? You ready? One, two, three. He sets the lonely in families. Is it simple enough? You got it? Should we say it again? All right. One, two, three. God sets the lonely in families. All right. 
So that's our, our thread that we're going to hold on to today. And we're going to go through some of the word and trace where this thread is. And there's many, many more references than what I'm going to give you today. Um, the notes are in the app if you guys want to if you guys want them. There's actually more notes in the app because I had to edit this down. So you get extra if you go in there. Um, but um, as with any story, it's good to start in the beginning, right? Um, and so we're going to start in Genesis uh, 2.18. And it says, And the Lord God said, And it is not good that man should be alone, that mankind should be alone. Um, and so some of you are going, I knew it. I knew it wasn't good. But you're going, I don't really know what to do about it. Um, so uh, if you are human, you're probably familiar at some point in your life with the concept of feeling lonely, um, whatever that has looked like for you. Um, and that's not just not having people around you. Do you know the, the idea of being in a crowded room and feeling alone? Um, that's a saying for a reason. We un kind of understand what it is to feel lonely. And here in the very beginning, God says, it's not good that mankind should be alone. So he creates the, the creation. He creates earth. He puts everything in it. He creates mankind. And when he creates them, he cr actually creates mankind um, in one body. And he says, this isn't good. This isn't good yet. And so he, what his response is to that is that he actually splits mankind into two. In Genesis 1, 2, you can read how this happens. He splits mankind into two and he creates male and female. And at that point, when they were no longer alone, at that point, he says, this is very good. And so right from the beginning, God says, this is not the model that man should be alone. So that applies right on down to us. He didn't create us to be alone. He created us in a very good way to be in connection with other people and with him. So um, when he did that, when he separated mankind into male and female, he created family. He created what we know as family, right? So he actually took um, one being and he made two corresponding opposites that, that together create family. And so he said, be fruitful and multiply. Without being graphic, you get it? When, you go, when those two go together, we create family, right? He created family. He said, cleave to one another. He said, you're going to be a family. You're going to be a unit. And so um, he created us to rule and to partner together as the image and likeness of God. And in the very same way, he created the church. He relates the church to a family very often in the word. So in Ephesians 2.19, he says, Now therefore you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens and saints and members of the household of God. I don't know about you, but I don't often have strangers in my household. And if they are, they're passing by. They are that, uh, they're the strangers and the foreigners. They can come in maybe for a meal and then they can go on out, but they're not members of my household. So he says that the church, we are members of the same household. We are family. Another illustration of how he does this in the church is the most famous prayer of all time, the Lord's Prayer. What are the very first two words of the Lord's Prayer? Our Father. Do you notice the, the uh, language of that prayer is not singular, it's plural. He's saying, 
our father and father of all the names God could have chosen for himself. He's the only one who got to choose his own name. And he chose a familial name. He chose to be called father because he is a God of family. He likes the structure of family. And so he said, I'm a father and all of you are part of my family. So he, he also calls us the body of Christ. We are one body with many members, each with a needful role and function. But it all comes back to this premise that we were created for family and that it was not good for us to be alone. So now, like I said earlier, we are pretty used to the concept as human beings of loneliness. So what happens when you find yourself in a state of not goodness? When God said it's not good for man to be alone, but you find yourself in that spot of feeling not good because you feel alone. What happens when that, when that takes place? So that's what we're going to do today is we're going to go through the word, and see some examples of what happens when this takes place and God's response to it because his design for us is for us to be in family. So loneliness can look like a lot of things. And I'm going to um, share some different characters in the Bible um, who found themselves kind of in this place. And the first one I'm going to share is a woman named Hagar. And she, to me, is an underrated character in the Bible. And there's so much. I just, I love her story, and we're not going to camp on it today. Um, but Hagar, if you're not familiar with that name, um, there were these other two members in the Bible called Abraham and Sarah. And I'm going to say Abraham and Sarah. At the time that this took place, their names had not, their names were Abram and Sarai, but I'm just very used to saying Abraham and Sarah, so it might come out that way. But Abraham and Sarah, God had made them a promise. Do you know what his promise was? That they would have a family. So Abraham and Sarah were old, beyond the years of childbearing, but God promised them that they were going to have a family. And so they go, okay, this is what God says. And so years go by, they still have not conceived. And so now they take matters into their own hands. And I, as I was getting convicted, as I read this story again, whenever we take things into our own hands, we say, we're going to hurry God along. We're going to help him out. He doesn't really need it. And things can go a little bit awry. Um, but they do. They take things into their own hands. And so uh, in Genesis 16, Sarah tells Abraham, uh, so Sarah's like, all right, this isn't working naturally, so we're going to help God. So Sarah tells uh, Abraham, take my maid and go sleep with her. And maybe that this is how this will happen. I had an idea, and I think this might work. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and so Sarah gives, um, oh, that, can you take that one down? We're not quite there yet. But thank you. Um, Sarah says, take my maid, go sleep with her. And guess what? Abraham takes her. And that language is actually oppressive language as though it was against like her will. This was not her idea. Um, this was something that they did to her. Um, and so they take Hagar and she conceives. And so they're like, well, okay, maybe it is going to work. But once this happens, once Hagar conceives, um, Hagar starts to, to look down. She starts to disrespect Sarah, her boss, basically. She starts to disrespect Sarah um, because um, she's saying, okay, 
you made me do this. And now she starts to think, maybe now, since she couldn't give you this family and I can, she starts to think, maybe I will be respected. I'll be seen in this family for a change because now I can give something that you couldn't give. And Sarah does not like this. Sarah does not like that Hagar begins to disrespect her in this way. And so Hagar, uh, and so then you can put that verse up now. Um, And so Abraham says to Sarah, uh, indeed, your maid is in your hand. So Sarah's like, I don't like that she's treating me like this. So Abraham says, she's your maid. She's in your hand. Do to her as you please. And so Sarah dealt harshly with her and Hagar fled from her presence. So you, you getting this story? So now this happened to Hagar. Sarah gets upset about it. She goes to Abraham. Abraham goes, do what you want with her. Sarah starts to treat her cruelly. And so Hagar says, I can't do this. I'm out of here. So Hagar flees. She's now alone and pregnant in the wilderness. Um, And so to tie this in, has anything ever happened to you? You don't need to respond to me. Has anything ever happened to you that just changed your life? wasn't your choosing. It just, it happened to you for whatever reason. And all of a sudden you are carrying this, you're carrying what happened to you. And now you're, you feel very alone because of it. Whatever that has been, you are now in a place of wilderness, of isolation because it wasn't your choice, but it happened. And we all could say something in our life. It wasn't our choice, but it happened and we had to carry it, and now we feel alone. And so Hagar is in this spot. And so in uh, Genesis 16, now she's in the wilderness, and I love this. It says, the angel of the Lord, and there's kind of questionings whether this was an angel or this was the Lord, but the angel of the Lord found Hagar beside a spring of water in the wilderness along the road to shore. And the angel said to her, Hagar, Sarai's servant, where have you come from and where are you going? And every time I start to sing Cotton Eye Joe in my head, but that's not where that came from, I'm sure. It says, I'm running away from my mistress, Sarai, she replied. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her authority. And then he added, I will give you more descendants than you can count. Just to rehearse this, Hagar fled because she was being treated cruelly. The Lord sought her out. The Lord went and found her in the wilderness. Remember, this is a God who sets the lonely in families. Even though this happened to her, even though she found herself in this place, the Lord sought her out, spoke to her, said, I see you. And not only do I see you, he made the same promise. He made a promise to her that she was going to have a family and that family was going to be large. So even though Abraham and Sarah kind of manipulated things, God says, I will make sure that you have a family. I will make sure that this is not the end of your story. So God will find us. He's always seeking us out, always. 
So when we find ourselves in that place of loneliness because something has happened to us, and again, I'm not talking about physical loneliness, like there's no one around you. I'm talking about those things inside of you that you might not even think about every day, but those things that have happened to you that you have carried, and there are moments when you go, God, I don't know how I handle this. I don't know how to deal with this. It's inside of me, and I feel alone in it. But God, just like Hagar, he says, you're not alone in it. I have made you promises and everything that the, that was meant for your harm, I will turn around for your good. So he makes sure that we are taken care of. And in verse 13 of Genesis 16, Hagar, she calls the name of the Lord who spoke to her and she says, you are the God who sees me. For she said, she said, truly, I have seen him who looks after me. And I love this. She says, you are the God who sees me. That's a name of God, uh, El Roy. I don't know if I'm saying that correctly, but the God who sees me. And he's that same God for each one of us. This is not just who he is for Hagar, but it's who he is for us. He will find us in our place uh, where injustice has taken place to us, in us, and he will find us and he'll say, I see it. I see you. I see what has taken place in your life. And I will make sure that my eyes never leave you. I will make sure that you are well taken care of. I will make sure that you are put in family. So Hagar's uh, name for God can be your name for God. Say, so he is the God who sees me. You can say it. Say, so he is the God who sees me. Say, Amen. All right. Am I talking too fast for you guys? Okay. It's a mixed review. Uh, all right. So sometimes what has happened to us can isolate us. Sometimes pain can isolate us. And if you have ever experienced pain, whether it's physical pain or emotional pain, you might understand how isolating that can be. And we can get in a place where no, re no one really understands what we're going through and you're seeking help and no one's got the answers, and you begin to feel broken and hopeless and helpless, and sometimes we start to go through this, this just thoughts. We're just desperate. We're trying to figure it out. We go, is this my fault? Did I do something? Am I, am I, is there a reason? Uh, and it just begins to torment our minds, and it be begins to make us feel very alone. I know what this is like, not in a physical sense, um, but in an emotional sense, where you're just desperate, and your mind almost starts to go crazy, because you're thinking, I can't stay in this place. It feels so lonely. It feels so isolating, um, and we don't know what to do about it. And all of our attempts uh, have failed. And so there's this woman in the Bible that had this experience. And this woman, her, um, she was actually defined by her pain in the Bible. She's known as the woman with the issue of blood. Can you imagine? That's your, that's your title. You are the woman with the issue of blood. But she was defined. Her story became defined by her pain. And so this story is in Mark 5. Uh, in verse 25 and 26, tells it. It says, Now a certain woman had a flow of blood for 12 years and had suffered many things from many physicians. This, the Bible's so relatable if you read it as such. 
She had this issue. She suffered many things from many physicians. She was trying to get help for this. She was seeing doctors. It says she suffered because their, their attempts were failing. And it says she, uh, yeah, she spent all that she had and she was no better, but rather grew worse. Can you just like feel her story for a moment? She was dealing with this for years and years and years. It had begun to define her life. She had sought out help. She had gone to doctors. She had suffered because of treatments that did not work. She had spent all that she had. And she just kept getting worse. And maybe that's been your story. Maybe it's been somebody that you know's story. I know I've walked alongside a lot of people in chronic pain, and it is awful and it is isolating, and it, is, it feels so helpless. And not only that, not only all of those things, but back then, um, guys, I'm sorry, but it's life. When women had their period, they were, known, they were unclean. They were supposed to be separate. They weren't allowed to be touched. They were on the outside. They were unclean. So this woman is dealing with this for 12 years, being labeled unclean, untouchable, separate from the rest. Can you imagine? And I, I thought it was funny because I was thinking about this. I was like, you know, sometimes when I'm on my period, it's probably best that I'm separate and I'm not around people and definitely don't touch me. Just leave me alone. You know, you get it. Women get it. But can you imagine after 12 years, this is going to take its toll. This is like beyond a few days. This is a long period of isolation that she's in. Um, and so she hears about this man that's healing people and she's desperate. And one thing I just came to me, one thing when, when we're in that spot, um, hope is just barely there sometimes. And so this woman, she said, I'm, I'm so desperate, but I haven't given up yet. And I would say that to anyone, don't give up yet, because there is still hope there. And so she hears about this man who's healing people in Mark 5, 27 and 28. It says, when she heard about Jesus, she came behind him in a crowd and she touched his garment. And she said, if only I may touch his clothes, I shall be made well. And if you look at that verse, I just noticed for the first time as I was preparing this, it says that she came from behind him in the crowd. And so even though she was desperate, she was still very used to not being seen. She was still very used to, to like not being the center of attention, not being seen. She came from behind and she blended in with the crowd and she touches Jesus' robe and immediately she knows she's healed. She can feel it in her body. She knows that a change has happened in that moment. And if that story would have ended right there, we would have taken the biggest post-it note and put it on our miracle fridge back there and it would have been amazing. It would have like blown our minds, right? Just that alone. But the story doesn't stop there. The Bible tells us so much more than we see the first glance sometimes. So it, it keeps going. And in verse 30, it says, And Jesus, immediately knowing in himself that power had gone out of him, he turned around in the crowd. He stopped. There's people everywhere touching him. He stopped. He said, Who touched me? And the disciples go, Are you kidding me? There are people everywhere. So many people are touching me and you want to know who just touched you. But Jesus stopped. He stopped everything for the woman who's not used to being seen. 
He stopped. And in verse 32, it says, and he looked around to see her. He stopped everything. Nothing Nothing was more important than her in that moment. He stopped. He looked around. He saw her. So Jesus did not just heal her infirmity, which probably would have been enough for her. But he healed the thing that had defined her, that she was separate, that she was unclean, untouchable, unseen. He stopped and he saw her and he changed the narrative of the rest of her life. He brought her into the forefront of history. So if you or someone that you know has been in that spot where you just feel like your pain has begun to define you, it's begin to, it's begin to shape your life, and you no longer even try to be seen, I'll come from behind, I'll blend in with the crowd. If that has been a story that you are familiar with, he is a God who stops everything to see this woman, and he'll do the same for you. It's not good to be alone, and he knows it, so he'll make sure. He'll make sure that no matter what's going on around you, no matter what has happened in you, he'll say, I'll make sure that their story is not defined by this. He'll stop, and he'll see us. Thank you, Jesus. Sometimes our experience can define us and our experience can isolate us. So again, another woman in the Bible who is defined by something that has happened, she's known as the woman caught in adultery. That's her name. The woman caught in adultery. Yeah, I'm not going to go there, but... Yeah, so this story is in John 8. It's, the header is a woman caught in adultery. She's caught in the act. And the setup for this story is that um, the scribes and the Pharisees, the religious leaders of the day, are trying to trap Jesus um, into violating the law. Because if he violates the law, then they have reason to accuse him. And so they find this woman. Um, I mean, come on, guys. You're going to find someone's sins. So they find this woman um, in the act of adultery. They, they come and they throw her in front of Jesus and they say, the law condemns this woman to stoning. What do you say? So they're thinking, we've got him, we got him, we got him. He's going to have to say, well, that's what the law says. So they throw this woman in front of, of Jesus and they say, what do you think? What, what should we do? And so instead of speaking, this is a life lesson right there, Sometimes instead of speaking what we think in that moment, he gets down, and I noticed this for the first time, is that she's standing, and he gets down on the ground, which would have postured him physically beneath her, and he begins to write something in the ground, and there's many, many theories on what that could have been. We don't know. It doesn't say. So he begins to write something on the ground, and uh, in verse verses 7 through 9... It says, when they continued asking him, he raised himself up and said to them, he who is without sin among you, let him throw a stone at her first. And when he stooped down again and wrote on the ground, and and he did it again, 
And then those who heard it, being convicted by their conscience, went out one by one, beginning with the oldest, even to the last. And Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in her midst. Have you ever felt isolated because you just felt like everyone was judging you and accusing you? And this part of the story, I think, is important because um, the people had left. Her accusers had left. And here she is standing with Jesus. And it continues in verses 10 and 11. And he said to her, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Now, she probably could have seen that there was no one there, right? But he goes, woman, where are those accusers of yours? Has no one condemned you? And she says, no one, Lord. And Jesus said to her, neither do I condemn you. Go and sin no more. And this part that stuck out to me in this story is that sometimes we have gotten accused in the past. We've heard those accusations towards us, whether they were valid or invalid. In her case, it was a valid accusation. They had evidence. But sometimes we hold on to those accusations for way longer than we need to. Sometimes the accusers have gone away. They're, they're in our past. It happened. It was part of the story, but it's not presently happening. But sometimes it's still in our mind and we still believe that those accusations are, they're just true. They're rolling around and they're, they're perceived accusations at that point. And we, it'll isolate us. It'll keep us from doing things because we're, oh no, they'll say this about me. Oh, they always say this about me. They'll think I'm this. They say this about me. They think this about me. And Jesus goes, woman, where are your accusers? Are they still here? She goes, no. Because sometimes we have to let go of old accusations that are keeping us isolated because of a past experience when Jesus says they're not here anymore. They're not here and I don't condemn you either. Maybe you did do it. Maybe there were rightful accusations and you're accusing yourself over and over and over again because of something that you did a long time ago or yesterday. And Jesus says, the voices are silenced and I don't accuse you either. Go and live a different life. He says, go and sin no more. That wasn't condemnation. That was forgiveness. That was freedom. He says, go and live a different life. And so when those accusations, real or perceived, sometimes are keeping us in a place of isolation where we won't even go out in public because of something that had happened or was said about us a long time ago, and it's kept us in a really small place. But Jesus doesn't want you in that place. He wants to set you free of that. And so without condemnation, he says, the voices have stopped. Stop them in your own mind and go and live a different life. Amen. I preached way ahead of myself, so thank you, Jesus. So sometimes um, we have to actually choose to step out in public again when our story has kept us 
in a small place or in a hidden place. We have to actually choose to say, I'm going to take a risk and maybe the accusations that I have told myself that are there, I'm going to actually take a risk and step out and confront that thing and say, okay, is this real? Is this really happening? Am I remembering backwards? What does God say about me? And he's redefining what he wants the rest of your story to look like. Can you say with me, say, I am forgiven. I am am wanted. I belong. I have something good to give. In this part, you can choose to say it or not. It says, I will not run away from family. Jesus, help me to receive and believe. And listen, this message is pointed at nobody. It's just a theme that I kind of notice as I'm reading the word, and I related to pieces of it. I know what that's like, and I know that he says that he sets the lonely in families, so he wants us all to have this experience of knowing that we're wanted and that we're accepted and that we belong in a family. And maybe that word family is triggering for some of you. If that was not a great experience for you in your biological sense, well, we could use the word community. We could say body. Uh, there's other words you can use if that's, if that's more helpful for you. But the point is, he doesn't want us to be alone. And he's brought us in to this experience of being in a family of God. Are you ready for another one? You got, I, this message is feeling way heavier than I expected. But <laughs> um, So another thing that can isolate us into loneliness is pride. And um, pride and pity are two sins that I personally have wrestled with in my life and still wrestle with in my life. Pride and pity. The cycle goes like this. I, I can do it all. And then it goes to the other half of the cycle, which is pity, which is I'm doing it all. And sometimes we get in that idea as like an independent person. I like to think I can do it all. I like wear it as like a crown until like I'm like on the ground, like snot dripping out of my face, like I can't do it all. Why am I alone? So I'm just being real. That's like I relate to this story. And so where the character we're using through the Bible is Elijah. And Elijah was this prophet doing amazing things for the Lord. God was on his side and he was proving that. Um, Elijah goes and there's just this big showy display where there's all these gods of the land, lowercase gods of the land. And Elijah goes and there's this big, like if you read it in 1 Kings, there's this big showdown and it's pretty dramatic. Like they could make movies about it, video games maybe. Um, But there is like this moment where God really shows off through Elijah and Elijah's like, my God wins, right? So he's like top of the mountain until he's not, like like a few verses later. So Elijah's like riding high. God is on my side. I just won this great uh, victory. And the queen of the land who um, worships all these other gods that were just defeated, she's real ticked off, real mad, so much so she puts a hit on Elijah's life. Um, And so Elijah goes from flying high to now Elijah is running for his life physically. So Elijah runs for his life, and in 1 Kings 19, 9, and 10, he throws this pity party. 
And it says, and there he went into a cave and he spent the night in that place. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him and he said to him, where, what are you doing here, Elijah? I don't ever want to hear that. That's like your middle name, like from God. What are you doing here, Elijah? But he says, so I, uh, so Elijah said, I've been very zealous for the Lord of the Lord God of hosts for the children of Israel have forsaken your covenant. They've torn down your altars and they've killed your prophets with the sword. I alone am left and they seek to take my life. I don't know if Elijah was a dramatic man, but this, I just hear it with a little bit of like, come on now. I alone am left. And they seek to take my life. Now, he's not wrong. They are seeking to take his life. And he is alone in this cave. Um, but he's alone in this cave. Um, and so sometimes we can be doing this amazing work. And we can be really getting those, like, feel good, like, pats on the back, even from ourselves, for the amazing things that we're doing. Good things that we're doing. Things for God. We're like, God is on my side. I am doing the right thing, Right? But sometimes um, when we are doing that, um, our pride can get us into this place of isolation and disillusionment where we start to think that it's all us and we forget that he's the God who called fire down from heaven, right? And so we um, can find ourselves in this place of isolation because um, all of our doing for the Lord has left us outside of relationship um, with him and with others. And so um, God goes on to instruct Elijah to anoint kings and a prophet to run after him. And he says, there's actually 7,000 others who have refused to bow down to, to the gods of Baal. Um, I want you to go and I want you to know that they're there and I want you to go and I want you to surround yourself with these people. And so um, he doesn't want us to be a lone ranger changing the world like a phrase I'm reminding myself of all the time. He doesn't want me to be doing it all by myself because what fun is a victory all by yourself? What fun is, or how lonely is a defeat when you're all by yourself? How do you have people around you who can support you through the ups and the downs of walking with the Lord, of doing amazing things for the Lord? So um, when you feel that loneliness or that thought that you're the only one, this can happen like in a, like a housewife situation. This can happen like in a, a work environment where you're like, I'm doing it all. No one sees me. I don't get the credit, right? Any, this could relate to any part of our life where we start to feel like we're all alone in our doing. And so um, the one thing that I have told myself is do not go into the cave of pity. And I, like, I have literally told myself this. I have to keep it in my brain because when I start to feel a cycle of pity come on where those thoughts are going, no one sees me. No one knows all that I do. Blah, blah, blah. Right? The like whininess. When that starts to come in, I have to go, oh, this is a bad cycle. I've been down this road before. It doesn't serve me. So pity, that pity does not serve us. Um, what serves us is, is looking around saying, Lord, show me the ones who are around me. Show me the truth. Show me the truth in the midst of my disillusionment. Show me the truth. And so he'll begin to open your eyes and he'll say, actually, there's all of these ones that are that are running with you, that are running the same direction as you are. And so um, 
don't go into the, the cave of pity. Um, and one strong saying that I've had to tell myself is do not expect someone else to come and sit with you in the pity cave. Like, cause sometimes I'm in that spot and like we in our narrative, like when we start to talk to each other, do you ever like, oh, I just wish someone would help me with this. Or we start to like talk to each other in this way that's like, come join me in my pity. And I don't think that is the way to go. It's just not a good idea. It's not a solution. Um, and so instead just say, Holy Spirit, open my eyes to see the truth Open my eyes to see how wanted and how valued and how appreciated and how loved I am. Because it, we all do it. We all get in these spots where we just aren't seeing clearly. Like Elijah. Now he was seeing thereafter his life. But instead of going to his people, he went into a cave. And that is the part that is just really, um, it's easy to do. And I, it's, I have done it over and over again. That's why I have like that muscle built to be going, Katie, you're going into the pity cave. Don't do that. It's not good for you. And so go out instead, find your people who aren't going to sit with you in the pity cave, but are actually going to say, hey, we're running in the same direction. Let's go. I want to run with you. I want to support you. I want to um, help you accomplish this mission. And so it's really powerful um, to make sure we don't end up in that isolation, but that we remember that God created us for uh, family, for community. So say he's a God of family. Say, I won't go it alone. I'm part of a family. All right. And the last one I'm going to share with you is this woman. She was a Samaritan woman at, at uh, a well. And so just what it says. She's a woman who was a Samaritan sitting at a well. Jesus comes through Samaria and he sits down at the well and she says, woman, give me a drink. And um, she goes, how? You don't have a bucket. You have nothing to draw with. Um, and he says, I can offer you living water then you'll never thirst again. And she says, give it to me. I want that water. But something that's important to note about this um, woman, one, is that she was a Samaritan woman. And Jews, without getting into it, Jews and Samaritans, there was this big racial um, cultural divide between them. And so the fact that he's even speaking to her is a big deal. And so here she is, and he is um, he's speaking to her. And it says, she goes, why are you speaking to me? You are a Jew. I'm a Samaritan. This is not what we do. And uh, just a quick sidebar, because I had to take it out. But sometimes our, uh, our judgments of people, our, our um, cultural divide lines, our prejudices, our party lines um, can cause us to isolate ourselves from people that God actually wants us to um, see and to partner with. And so don't allow um, that separation, even in our thinking, to isolate us from being with people, because he's actually given us the ministry of reconciliation, that he's given us the ministry of family to actually bring people into the fold instead of isolating them outside of the fold. That's a sidebar. Okay, but this woman, I know you would say amen over there, but um, this woman, so she says, give me this water. Give me this water that you speak of. I don't, I want this. And I think she could probably feel he wasn't just talking about physical water. There's the, the spirit is, is present in this communication. And so he says to her in John 4, 17 through 18, the woman answered him and said, oh, um, 
sorry. He says, go get your husband. She says, give me the water. He says, go get your husband and bring him back here. And she says, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you're right in saying this. Uh, you have no husband. She said, he says, for you've had five husbands and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. She goes on and she's like, I perceive that you're a prophet, which is hilarious because she's like, you just read my mail. Uh, I perceive that you're a prophet, but that's beside the point. Um, but in saying that, so she had five husbands and the one she's with now is not her husband. And so with her, she's probably not used to being alone. Like her story is that she's had a lot of partners. I mean, I wouldn't say there were partners back then, to be honest, but she had a lot of husbands. Um, and so she wasn't really used to being alone. And for some of us, for me included, I, the thought of being alone is, can be really terrifying, like really scary thought. There was a portion of my life, and remember I told you how I'm very independent and think I can do it all on my own, which is hilarious because for a portion of my life, I was death, like I was terrified of being alone. Like you wouldn't have known it, but inside of me, my process was always like on my calendar, make sure you're not alone. Make sure you're not alone. And the thing with that was, um, I wasn't afraid of the dark. I wasn't afraid of the boogeyman. I've never been afraid of like people breaking into my house. Probably should be a little bit. I don't know. But that wasn't the fear. The fear was I can't be alone with my own mind. I'm terrified of being alone with my own mind. I do not like the story that it tells me. It scares me. Like in times of like depression, anxiety, like that being stuck in my own head was the worst thing. And so sometimes... Um, we're around all these other people and we do that to like keep us safe because the thought of being alone in our own mind scares us. So maybe that's not relatable to you, but it was to me. And so this woman, um, she's used to having people around her. I was very used. I grew up in a big family. I was never alone to the point where I was like, oh my gosh, I'm never alone. But then it hit a point where I, where I, I could actually be alone. I was like, wait, 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 wait. I'm not used to this. I'm not used to being alone. So this woman who had all these husbands, she's probably not used to being alone. And so what we do is we try to fill our time and our space so that we're not alone. So we have this like pseudo idea. So like we go back to the, the analogy of the water. She says, you know, or she, there's physical water there. And Jesus goes, I can give you water that you'll never need thirst. You'll never thirst again. It will actually satiate you. And so sometimes, like for me, I would always fill my calendar to make sure I wasn't alone, make sure I was doing things with people, make sure I was just always had someone to keep me distracted. And so we try to do these things, these like coping mechanisms, so that we don't feel alone. So that water, we try to like fill ourselves over and over and over again with that water that just keeps depleting. And Jesus goes, I want to give you, I want you to know that you are filled, that you are not alone, that I am with you, all the things that I've given you. I want you to know that you're wanted, that you're valued, that you're accepted, that you belong, that you have a place. He wants our thoughts to be transformed to where we're not afraid of that narrative of being alone, but we can actually receive what he wants to speak into us, which is the truth that he sets the lonely in families, whatever that looks like for you, so that you don't always have to um, be up against this fear of what if, what if, what if, what if, what if, or I can't stand being alone with myself. It's scary. My thoughts are dark right now. 
So sometimes we just have to open our hearts up and say, what do you say about me? What is the truth? Because I want to be okay with being alone with myself. Because it's not just about, it's not, there's nothing wrong with being alone. Like, I love my alone time. Like, I love my alone time. Um, but now I love my alone time. Because I actually began to face those fears of my own mind that said that I was alone. And now I can be alone physically and know that I'm so loved and know that I'm valued and that I'm wanted and that I can be around other people because I love other people, not because I need other people so that I'm not alone. It like brings it into this beautiful um, giving and receiving so that I can receive from you but not be taking from you in order to meet my need. Sorry, I feel like I'm getting a little bit long-winded. But um, so he wants to put the lonely in families. He doesn't want us to just be temporarily filled with the idea of something. He wants us to be filled with the idea that we are so loved and that we're so wanted and that we're, we belong, that we're so valued and so valuable. And when we get to that place, that's when we get to partner with him in this ministry of reconciliation. We get to actually be family to others. We get to actually... Um, uh, invite other people in and say, you're not alone. You are wanted. You are valuable. We can be that for each other. We can be that for the world, uh, which is the place that we all want to be, is that we're not um, just receiving for ourselves, but we're actually able to partner with him in this mission to set the lonely in families. Uh, my family was really always good at finding the lonely ones um, and making sure that they felt like they had a place. Um, and so we get to do that for people. And um, it doesn't mean you got to like lend out your spare bedroom. It just means that when you know that you are loved, you will genuinely be able to love others. And that's the goal. That's where we want to get to. Uh, and being able to come back to that um, Eden state where they weren't alone and God said it was very good. We can actually be part of eradicating loneliness um, through our positioning, through knowing that we are not only not alone, but that we are wanted and loved and accepted in him. How you guys doing? <laughs> okay. Yeah. Well, that is the message that I have for us today. And I know it was so, so much, um, but I really just ask the Holy Spirit and um, to just speak to our hearts and just illuminate any area where that loneliness, maybe it's not like a big obvious thing. Maybe you're like, well, I don't feel lonely. I'm not dealing with that. But even if it's just this little hint that tries to come in sometimes, I just ask Holy Spirit, would you just show us wherever this little seed would try to come in uh, and to shape our beliefs about our self and about others and about you. God, and we just thank you, Father, for the truth that you set the lonely in families. God, the truth that it is good for us to be together uh, in community in you. God, the truth that we are wanted and accepted and valued uh, and that we belong, that we have something good to give um, to you, to one another. God, I thank you for um, purifying the mind, God, cleansing that mind slate, those accusations um, that have tried to keep us in loneliness uh, when the accusations are not even there anymore. So God, I just thank you for the renewing of our mind, God, as we believe that we are uh, loved, that we are wanted, that we belong. 
And Father, uh, we just ask for the, the grace and the anointing, God, to face these things, God, to even, to even begin to believe um, that you haven't called us to be alone, that you are God who sees us, God, that you will seek us out. Um, but Father, I thank you, God, that we're going to meet you there. God, we're not just going to wait in our old thinking for you to come and find us. But Father, we're going to uh, say, God, I want to know what this is all about. I want that living water um, that will satisfy uh, this desire in my heart. In Jesus' name, can you say amen? Amen. <laughs>